listening to The 30 Podcast. Here's your host, Jazz Kang. All right, welcome to a new episode recording this on a Sunday afternoon. Don't forget as well, subscribe to our Silver Screen and Roll podcast network. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, you name it, we are there. And of course, check out silverscreenandroll.com for all your Lakers needs. The NBA, about 19 days away from returning. So we're hoping everything goes according to plan over there in Orlando. And if it does, definitely you don't want to miss what Christian, Harrison, Sabrina, and the whole crew does. Uh, Got you covered with anything you need to know about the Lakers, stats, opinions, analysis, you name it. Check out silverscreenandroll.com. A special episode today, recording it with someone who is very distinguished in in his field. He is a Hall of Famer, New York Times bestseller. He's done it all, one of the best in the the business. Uh, Andy Bernstein. Andy, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, Enjoying my last few weeks here before I got to head down to the bubble and uh, doing really well. Thank you. So what do you are you anticipating everything will go off without a hitch with with the NBA's plans right now? I know I know that, you know, I think they had 16 players text test, uh, pardon me, positive for for the coronavirus. So do you think there are you confident in Adam Silver and the, and the league that they're going to be able to pull this off without a hitch? You know, I'm, I'm really 100 percent confident. And I don't say that lightly. Um, yeah, I've been around long enough with the NBA. This is going to be well, this is my 38th season. So, you know, seen it all. Um, this is definitely a unique situation. There's no doubt about it. But the, the one thing I'm, that I can always count on is that the NBA is going to be as extremely careful when it comes to health and when it comes to safety. And I can say that, you know, really, you know, flat out because I've been to so many international events, um, Olympics, things like that, where, you know, they are very, very careful with us. And and their players and staff and everybody who has to be there. And we're sent all kinds of protocol uh, documents and and preparation. And this event, yes, definitely different, but um, their process, uh, although I'm sure it's ramped up, you know, tenfold from what it would normally be for, let's say, an international event, um, they have left no stone, stone unturned. Does it mean that something can't go you know awry down there but they have you know from what i've heard they they have contingency plans they have ways to deal with um people who might test positive and they've made all the arrangements for that so let's you know i'm trying to be an optimist here i've heard so much negativity and so much about what could go wrong and may go wrong and will go wrong i i don't like to live that way so i'm i'm being optimistic i'm looking at this as an incredible adventure but also as a, as a unique time in NBA sports history. Yeah, it's 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 um it's a it's a crazy time and I know even for me, you know, working in in sports media, I'm like, all right, let's get back going with some sports if we can. So I'm excited to to see <laughs> yeah. it happen. Uh what what's kind of your uh, your tentative schedule right now? I mean, you're you're for people who don't know, um you're one of the best photographers in the business, if not the best. Um what what's kind of your itinerary? What what are they going to walk you through? You're going to go there, they're going to test you a few times and set you up with a hotel mm-hmm. room. What do they kind of have you going with? Um, what's your, I, I would say, itinerary um, for for heading to Orlando? Yeah, well, we've we have uh, basically three waves of photographers going down. Um, the first wave has been there already. They were there before the players arrived, shooting all the prep and all the uh, the setup and the arrivals of the teams. And now the second wave will be going in pretty shortly um, to get 
the start of games, you know, the eight games of the regular season and then into the first round of the playoffs. And I'm in the third wave, myself and Nat Butler and a couple of other um, more senior staff. And we're going to be there basically for, uh, I guess, the start of the second round through the finals. So that could potentially be seven weeks if the, uh, you know, those two series, three series, second round, conference finals and finals go seven games each. Um, scheduled to go until October 12th, I believe. So, um, and the protocol is that uh, they want us to pretty much self-quarantine at home before we head down there for about a week. And then uh, once we get there, we'll quarantine for a period of time. Not sure how much time that is yet, but uh, it could be, you know, a number of days and be tested regularly during that quarantine period. And once they've, uh, you know, established that we're good and healthy and negative, um, we'll be set out to work. And uh, from what I'm hearing from my uh, my coworkers, it's really a incredibly buttoned up situation there. That the bubble is is truly a bubble. <laughs> it's an impenetrable bubble, um, <laughs> and they are being very very careful uh, with you know social distancing and how close we're allowed to get to the players and them to us. And interviews you've seen you know, that the interviews that the players are doing are really, you know, over Zoom, over TV or however they're doing it. So, you know, very, very, very few media are going to be allowed in the bubble. And um, yeah, uncharted waters for sure. But it's going to be it's going to be interesting. And I'm going to try to make the best of it and have it be fun. All right, Andy, I'm going to put you on the spot a bit here. I know you might not want to want to answer this question, but I will put you on the spot. Who's going to win the title, the Lakers or the Clippers? (laughs) <laughs> um yeah you can't put me on the spot like that but, uh you know if either of those teams I'm, I'm gonna be so politically correct here it's not even funny if either of those teams win i will be thrilled <laughs> and, and i'll be i'll i'll be almost thrilled if any other team wins because you know i got to be impartial working for the nba and having that hat on now that being said you know i've worked for the lakers and clippers um, almost the same amount of time. The Clippers a couple of more years less because they didn't move to LA till '84. But um, and I love both those franchises and uh, have been through the ups and downs with both of them. You know, and look, it's it's a really historic year in terms of the Lakers and Clippers both being good at the same time. Um, you know, I've been talking to some friends and those of us have been around both teams. We honestly can't remember, and I don't think it's ever happened. First of all, it's never happened that they played each other in the playoffs ever, which is bizarre, but it's true. But it's never happened that both teams were decent, were good, you know, but they've never been this good at the same time. So that's exciting. You know, the prospect of, of a conference final, you know, it won't be won't be a hallway series in Staples Center, but, you know, I don't think these guys care if it's in in a bubble, if it's on the moon, you know, in Antarctica. What do they care? They just want to hoop, and uh, it's going to be a hell of a hell of a series if we end up seeing those, both those teams in the conference final. Well, Andy, you should get into uh, into politics because that was a great answer right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I want I want to jump back to to your uh, we'll we'll get into some more NBA chat later on but I want to get back into into your story I mean you grew up in uh, you grew up in Brooklyn um, went to UMass and, and you ended up moving out to to LA for for school and and so I want to get back into kind of your your creative juices and and how you mm-hmm. how you ended up 
you know, deciding that, hey, I'm going to I, I want to get into photography. So did you have a passion for this at a young age or was it something that you just kind of grew into as you as you develop? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I, I really uh, started when I was 14. My dad bought me my first camera and he and I made a trip out to all the national parks in the West that summer of my 14th year. And I, I really found very quickly that I enjoyed photography, that I was pretty good at it. Um, my dad was very encouraging. And then when I went back to school that, that September, um, I think it was, what is it, in the 10th grade, I guess, uh, I had a very good friend who had a dark room in his basement. And uh, he took me down there and showed me how to develop film and make prints. And then when, honestly, when, when I saw that first print come up in the developer in the tray, and, and it just it literally like magic in front of my eyes, I knew this, this is, <laughs> this is pretty cool. I mean, I, you know, I, I created this in my head and then it, it, you know, transcribed through my camera. And then now it's turning out as like this tangible thing that I can look at. And it, it was just amazing. So um, I always loved sports, was a huge New York Rangers fan growing up, a uh, New York Mets fan. I was always the shortest kid on the block. So I do, I wouldn't ever, <laughs> you know, play at varsity sports or anything. But um you know, my dad was very instrumental in that realm as well because he took me to basically every Rangers game from maybe eight or nine years old until I went to college, every home game. And uh, so, I, you know, I wanted to sort of meld both of those passions, you know, my passion for sports, my passion for photography. And it took a little while to get there. You know, UMass was, was great. And I got my feet wet at UMass um, shooting for our daily newspaper but I wasn't learning the craft of photography, the science of it, the history. So I made a tough decision in my middle of my junior year to transfer out to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. And, uh, you know, I did it. And from day one, I was discouraged about being a sports photographer, quite honestly, at the school. But I had two teachers there who mentored me and didn't let me get discouraged. And one of my teachers who both of these guys are still great friends and mentors, but one of my teachers, Bill Robbins, introduced me to a Sports Illustrated staff photographer who I started to assist for, and then I met more of their photographers and started to assist for them and got my foot in the door and learned this specialized technique of lighting arenas uh, for hockey and basketball. And, uh, you know, it was really in, in the right place at the right time in the early 80s when Showtime was really starting up and the NBA was really starting to make strides and they needed somebody, you know, on the West Coast and just happened to have the all-star game at the forum in 83 and everything took off from there, quite honestly. And, and then I also was shooting all kinds of other sports at the time. I became the Dodgers team photographer in 84 and was with them for, for 11 years. Um, I always joke that uh, the last time they won the World Series, I was their team photographer in 88. <laughs> so. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it's been a good run. I've, I've kind of channeled my career, my photography career, more towards basketball in the last maybe eight or 10 years. However, my company, Bernstein Associates, we still do all the events and teams at Staples Center. And I'm the director of photography for Staples and for Microsoft Theater. So we keep very, very busy when there doesn't have to happen to be a pandemic going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's thrown a loop in most most people's plans. Yeah, right. um, when 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 you when you were moved out here and 
um, you know, you're, you're, you're getting better and you're, do, you're doing these big events. At what point did you realize, okay, I'm, I'm, I can do this. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make a living off of this and, and I, I'm really good at what I do. Did you have a moment of, of almost clarity of, to say to yourself, yeah, this is, this is my calling in life almost. Yeah, that's another great question. I, I remember working for some Sports Illustrated photographers and, you know, I'm humping lenses around and I'm changing film and I'm doing all kinds of stuff and lighting and all that. And and I'm thinking, wow, this is this is great. I mean, I, I would love to be doing this for a living. And I knew that it was, uh, you know, it was a step-by-step process, that I wasn't going to go from being you know, a student at an art and photography school to have the cover of Sports Illustrated overnight. I mean, that only happens, you know, once in like a million times. Walter Yost was 18 years old when he had his first cover, for example, for SI. But I knew I had to work my way up and pay my dues. And um, I was very, very determined and kind of had a little Mamba mentality then, although, you know, I didn't know what that was. But I definitely... (laughs) <laughs> um, was relentless in my sort of pursuit of making this craft into a career. You know, it was, you know, Peter Goober, my, my good friend who owns the Dodgers and the Warriors and this entertainment mogul, um, you know, he's become a great friend and mogul, I'm sorry, a great friend and mentor. And, um, you know, Peter has a famous saying that dreams plus goals equals destiny. You know, you have, you, have, you start with a dream and then, that has to develop into a goal, a tangible goal that you work your butt off to achieve. And maybe that's what your destiny has always been, you know, but, and getting to the promised land, you know, for me, the promised land was a cover of sports illustrated. And uh, when I achieved that, um, I really knew honestly that I had arrived <laughs> that like my career. Okay. It's, it's at the beginnings. It's, it's at its infancy. This is 1985, but, no one can take that cover away from me <laughs> and it has my name on it and it means something. And, uh, you know, those were goals. Those were benchmarks in, in my career, um, that, you know, I kept hitting one after the other. Um, and it's been very gratifying. Uh, you know, doesn't mean there haven't been disappointments and missteps and, um, you know, all kinds of minefields around, you know, along the way, but that's how you learn. And um, that's something I try to get across to young photographers when they ask me the same question you just asked. Yeah, and your work, I mean, and, and again, for people who aren't, aren't familiar with it, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're listening, I mean, you've, you've worked with the Lakers, for, like you said, for, you know, years and decades now. And, and, and kind of the, the, the images that you've, you've captured are, are some of the best and, and the historic in, in, in NBA history. You really, you know, from Magic and, and Larry Bird all the way through um Kobe's career so I want to go back to when when you kind of started working for the Lakers and and you're there and it's the the middle of the showtime era what was it like just being at the forum and having that access to the team it was like the coolest thing ever (laughs) and you know there were there were many many less layers of um you know protocol and red tape and and you know people who kind of were gatekeepers along the way you know it was it was much easier than i i had quickly earned my way into sort of the inner circle and i have really two or three people to thank honestly i mean gary Beatty first of all because gary being a longtime lakers trainer you know the locker room training room those that was his domain you know that's where he he could decide who can come in and who can't quite frankly 
and uh, you know, the true gatekeeper. And Gary and I became good friends and he saw what I was trying to do as a young photographer and Pat Riley saw it too. And Pat um, was extremely protective of his team and his, um, his inner sanctum. But uh, I, you know, kind of used some Brooklyn moxie on him and he's a Schenectady guy. So he kind of got it. And, uh, you know, we, we had this great kind of incredible meeting of the minds. You know, he knew what I was trying to do as long as I didn't overstep uh, or make it about me. And it was about, you know, documenting his team and he was fine with it. And, you know, the other person, quite honestly, was Magic because Magic welcomed me from day one. And, um, you know, we forged a great friendship, but a great working relationship. And, uh, you know, that just that just extended into, um, you know, the Kobe and Shaq era, of course, and, and uh, you know, being with Kobe for 20 years and all that. So, um, but it's that, you know, those early years were important because if, if I had if I had made it about me or there was, you know, something annoying or unprofessional about me, you know, I wouldn't have lasted five minutes. I mean, it's serious. It would have been like, you know, it's like do your job from the baseline or whatever, but you're not, you know, you're not coming inside, inside the locker room or inside our inner sanctum. So, you know, there's, I guess something about my personality that people could appreciate how driven I was, but I was driven in a way that, that wasn't, you know, arrogant, I guess, you know, other people might differ that opinion, about me, but I was trying, I was trying to be confident, but yet not arrogant, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get, no, I, I get you. And, and I think, you know, to, 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 to accomplish the things that you have and to make it where you have, you have to have the right outlook and attitude on, on, on things mm -hmm. as well. And I think that people can tell when you're genuinely into, into what you're doing. And, and I want to jump in that too, because I know, you know, you, you spent, um, you spent basically the entire time with, with Kobe and you got to meet him as a, as a young man, high school and mm -hmm. upper of 96. So, you know, when you first kind of uh, met and, and had this opportunity to, to speak with him, um, why do you think that you were able to connect with him on that level? Well, you know, I was, I was fortunate because by the time Kobe came in 96, I had already been working very closely with the Lakers for well, 13, 13 years, I guess, 13, 14 years. So, you know, I had built up some, some cachet with the team. He had, you know, we've talked about, I've talked about this many times, but he had heard of me and knew about me because he would study posters, you know, and pictures of mine and look at the photo credit. So, you know, I had a reputation by the time I met him, which really helped. And Kobe, you know, being the ultimate student of the game from every sense of the word, he, you know, he, I think he was pretty jazzed about the fact that he was going to be, and I don't want to say this in a bad way, but that he was going to be photographed by me, you know, that like, oh, that's so cool. Like you shot Michael Jordan, you shot Barkley, you shot Isaiah and all these and, and magic, all these guys that I idolize. And now you're going to be shooting me. Wow. <laughs> you know, that that's the kind of the vibe I got from him. But I also saw in him, even though I'm, you know, 20 years older than him when we met, that there was something in him in 18 that, that was a mirror image of me at 18. You know, we had two different crafts. You know, his was playing and mine was shooting. But he was, you know, this relentlessly driven guy with a, sort of a chip on his shoulder. And I was the same way, you know. And we never really talked about that per se, but that was kind of the unsaid 
bond between us, uh, quite frankly. And then as we, as we started to do our book together, you know, after he retired, <clears throat> you know, we had talked about that obsession about that pillar, one of the four pillars of the Mamba mentality being obsession. And, you know, he, he knew I was as, as obsessed with my craft as he was with his. I mean, he had that famous quote that said, if you're not obsessed with what you do, we don't speak the same language, you know? And, yeah. and I felt like I honestly did in that moment when I met him that first time and he told me that he knew who I was because he had all my posts. I just knew there was something about this kid that this is going to be a long-term thing. <laughs> you know, I, I really like him a lot and he's somebody I really want to get in front of my camera. We, and I want to get I want to get into this because this is one bit one big thing I have to ask you because I was, I was reading you know reading up and doing some research and the the technology that you've seen change I mean, you mentioned you've been with the Lakers in the eighties and then when when you know Kobe mm -hmm. came around in the nineties how has technology changed for you and how have you been able to keep up with all of it because it, I mean it's funny I have to teach my dad who's you know immigrated from from India to Canada how to even send a simple <laughs> text message um, you know, how to use the laptop and and so I'm like right. okay you know for you and, and, and growing in this thing and you know I remember being in high school I, I didn't have a cell phone in high school my first time I had a cell phone was um, <laughs> you know I think I was, I was 18 going on 19 so you kind of have have had to adapt and you got all this new new features coming out obviously now you can take uh, great pictures on your phone, depending on on which one you have. Uh, how were you able mm -hmm. to to kind of like? Did you have to take special time out to kind of learn what what the new uh, gadgets and new cameras are? Like, how have you been able to to adapt to everything that you've seen over over your career? Well, I wish I had time to to adapt, honestly. But I I had to go kicking and screaming into the digital era because uh, there was no time. I mean, I had it was really done honestly on the fly. I mean, we we at the NBA NBA photos. We started to incorporate digital into our uh, workflow, into our daily game coverage, um, eh, like around 98-ish, you know, and when the very first decent digital cameras came out. I mean, looking at them now, they, you know, they were like, like shooting with, like driving in a Model T, quite honestly. But it was, you know, back then it was super cool that these digital cameras could you know, you could record on a, on a chip, you know, on a card instead of on film and all that. And uh, so we started off with one or two cameras in our system, you know, of, of seven, eight, 10, 12, 15 cameras, no matter, you know, depending on what event we're covering. And then it just kind of mushroomed. And uh, all of a sudden by, I don't know, 2004, five-ish, we're like 100% digital. And I, I had to learn on the fly. I mean, thank God my son, who at that time was like 12, 13, he really helped me, uh, honestly, just like you and your dad. He helped me uh, learn it. I had assistants who were really great at all that stuff and learning that stuff. And quite frankly, I don't really know enough right now, but I have good people around me that really know what they're doing, <laughs> quite quite frankly. And I, I, I rely on them. Um, it was a difficult transition. It, it, it's still a difficult transition as as a creator, as a as a, you know an artist, because um, there I'm not creating something tangible anymore. You know, if you if you follow me, I, you know, back in the film days, I would create a piece of film that you could literally just hold in your hand and and look up you know in a light source or or in front of you and say I created this thing you know, and now I'm creating ones and zeros. <laughs> <laughs> you can't hold in your hand, you know. So it's a little, uh, it's a little disconcerting, 
you know, because it, I'm not creating a tangible thing. Um, and that, that sticks in my craw, but it is the way it is. And, uh, we've now, you know, are fully digital, of course. And, and not only are we digital, but half of my cameras that I shoot with, uh, at a game are tethered back through an e- a high-speed e- ethernet line. They're tethered directly to a editor's laptop in New Jersey, <laughs> wherever, wherever I am all over the world there's an editor at NBA photos in New Jersey who's receiving my photos as I shoot, which is mind blowing, you know, and he's editing or she's editing and boom, you know, they get the caption and get the photo out to Getty. And, and, you know, within five minutes, that photo is out on Getty images to the world. So that's pretty mind blowing if you think about it. Yeah. I, I, I'm still learning how to use, um, Twitter and Instagram. I'm, 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 I'm much <laughs> younger than you and I'm still kind of amazed with, with all this stuff and all the stuff you could do with your phone. Uh, Andy, you want to yeah. keep, uh, it's a fascinating topic. Uh, I want to, I want to jump into this uh, a little bit more. We'll do that after a short break. All right. And we are back. Uh, Andy, what I want to ask you this too. I mean, you, you, you're, you're a part of the, uh, you know, the, the USOC, the, the Olympic committee, you help out with the, with the, um, with the 1992 dream team and, and you've done all these, all these cool projects. I do want to ask you, I mean, you've worked with Shaq, uh, LeBron, you know, Kobe, like we mentioned and, and the Lakers Clippers, you've, you've done it all. Is there one person, I, I know we touched on Kobe already, but is there, is there another athlete that you particularly enjoyed working with in terms of their attitude and their outlook and, and just kind of their easygoingness? Well, yes, you could call him an athlete because he was at one point. But when I got to know him, he was he was a head coach. Um, I got a name Phil Jackson right in there because <clears throat> being able to be around Phil as a person, just just as you know, he, as a human being. I mean, he's like one of the most fascinating people I've ever met in my life. And <clears throat> the fact that I was there in his locker room for all eleven championships that he won. You know, six with the Bulls, five with the Lakers. Um, to be able to travel with him and sit and have dinner with him to kibitz and, and, and just learn from him, um, watch him. Uh, that's been one of the most valuable experiences of my life, quite honestly. And Phil and I still communicate, you know, he's, he's living the life, you know, in retirement, um, in Montana. And I, I'm sending him, I sent him a picture yesterday, quite frankly, something we ran on, uh, Instagram and, um, you know, he'll write back and, We'll chat and we'll reminisce, especially during the whole last dance uh, thing, you know, and I would, I was there for that whole thing. And I, I was really enjoying watching, you know, living through that again and, and reminiscing with Phil by text or by email. So, you know, definitely I got to put Phil in there. I'd be Pat Riley. I mentioned him before, but he was just so amazing. And, and, you know, there's been so many athletes. I, I can't even name you know one or two uh but you mentioned you know top of the list kobe of course and and magic shack um i'd spend enough time with lebron to really understand what he's all about and uh what what he brings to the table not only in the world of basketball but um, right now of course with social justice and what he's trying to do in the community i mean just an amazing human being and his mission and uh you know, I, I can name a million people. I mean, Jeannie Buss has been, you know, an amazing colleague and, and somebody who's supported me since day one. And we kind of grew up together in the NBA. Um, you know, on the Clippers side, uh, I've had a great relationship with Doc Rivers over the years. And, 
gotten to know Steve Ballmer, who I admire incredibly. You know, he's just an amazing person, he and his wife, what they're doing. So, you know, what's great is it's not just about sports. It's about the person, about what they're doing in, in the world, uh, what they stand for. And as I've gotten older, you know, I've realized that I was so tunnel vision as a young photographer. It was just all about, you know, moving my career forward and really thinking just about sports. But that's been able to to grow and branch out and, and being of service has become a huge part of, of my life and and of this new platform that I started. Yeah, and and and, and you know, as you're, as you're mentioning, and, and you've 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 worked with all these people and, and uh, you know, famous people and 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 in the in the sports world, and you've gotten to forge relationships with them. And you, you know, you mentioned going over that with Phil Jackson. I've read I've read his books too, and and I find him fascinating as well. Just the way he mm-hmm. approaches life and and almost looks at mm-hmm. um, each day, you know. And I think a lot of people sometimes get so caught up in their own minds. And it, it was interesting even watching the Last Dance. Um, you know, his approach to managing 12 different egos, you know what I mean? Well, Michael yeah. Jordan had the, yeah. had the biggest one there, let's not lie, but, um, yeah. you know, the way you have to, you have to kind of um, get everybody on the same page and get everybody to buy into to what you're doing. And and it's funny, I remember, um, I believe it was uh, Jordan's um, agent, I think it was, I, I, I might not be remembering correctly, but on mm-hmm. that, uh, on, on one of the episodes he mentioned, he goes, you know, it's not the fact that Michael can uh, jump higher than anyone or run faster than anyone it's his uncanny ability to to stay in the moment and mm. and just kind of capture cap, you know be be where he is at that time and be present and it was funny i i, I remember it and that really kind of resonated with me where he was talking about that he goes people fly to india and, and go to buddhist temples and in, in in china mm-hmm. to try and figure out how to stay in the moment so for you when, you, when you're around mm. all these people and everything you've accomplished as well what do you find that separates uh, people who kind of made it to the top of their field and regular folk like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I, I made it <laughs> way above that level that you're giving yourself credit for. But, um, you know, there's this, this 390 or so players, I think, in the NBA, right? And you you have to be you have to be great to get to the NBA. I mean, there's some stat that says like one-tenth of one percent of people who – play basketball end up in the nba i mean it's like some ridiculous number right <laughs> of you know the odds of making it so you have to be great you you do you have to be a great athlete to make it to the nba but then there's that level above greatness there's that iconic level there's that legend level that these guys just have another gear you know like the first time i ever drove in a porsche you know i was driving in my friend's porsche and he had a six gear in his stick ship and i'm like yeah what is that? A six gear? I I never see the six gear. You know, this is like, these guys have like a six to seven, the 10th gear. And, and they're all, they all have like one name, you know, it's like Shaq, Kobe, Magic, Bird, you know, Jeter, uh, Brady, you know, it's like, you don't have to even use this first name and second, the last name, you know, who these people are, you know, Tiger can name 20, 30 of those guys. But, that that level of greatness is um, is few and far between, but there's there's like a thread between these guys. It's like a common DNA thread, and um, Kobe was always fascinated with that, with greatness, and and he talked so eloquently about how he would seek out people who were not in sports, you know, who had greatness, had achieved greatness, and had achieved levels in their fields. You know, guys like Barack Obama, you know, or John Williams, 
And, you know, he calls John Williams in the middle of the night to pick his brain about his, you know, multi um, Academy Award winning scores that he's written. And the next thing you know, what happens? He's partnering with John Williams. They win an Academy Award together. (laughs) So, you know, there's something to learn from that. I mean, and this is Kobe Bryant, who obviously is one of those people who have attained that that level. So I've I've learned so much from being around greatness um, and seeing that common thread and that that true Mamba mentality. I mean, I keep coming back to that, but it, it really is pervasive from from any of these great people, one to the other. You can definitely see that. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's constantly being almost a student of life as, as you go, mm-hmm. and and you know, and obviously, I mean, it it was it's terrible what happened with with Kobe, although it does feel like it happened four years ago now because of the the pandemic yeah. and what's going on in the world, and it was mm-hmm. uh, obviously awful, awful to see that. But you know, getting to and I think I started kind of reading a bit more about him and learning about his mentality, and it's like he was a fascinating man, not just as a basketball player, but he was fascinating as a as a person. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to wanted to ask you this as well: Is there a particular Moment, I know you've 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 covered everything, and and you know it's, it's I know it might be hard for you to 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 pick one or two, but is there a moment in particular for you that stands out during your career that you look at and say, "Wow, I really really enjoyed that more than maybe a little bit more than others"? <laughs> well, if you look at a twenty-year career, you know, Kobe's twenty-year career as a moment, because I I look at that as really a, as a block of time, um, that really stands out. I mean, his final game was was so pivotal and so poignant and and memorable and historic not just because of the fairy tale ending and him scoring 60 points and dropping the mic mamba out and all that stuff but but for me personally like i got home that night at three four in the morning i had been with him since nine in the morning and uh just to just to think about and sort of reminisce in my mind about, wow, I was with this kid, this guy, when he was a kid, like he was 18, he just turned 18 years old. You know, I had kids, my kids at this point, when he retired, they were already, you know, in the workforce, out of college already. <laughs> I mean, what I went through in my life in that 20 year span and how I grew as a person and to watch him um, go from this wild, wild eyed rookie, you know, to this iconic hall of fame, you know, legend. Um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. And I was very humbled actually, and very grateful that the NBA put me in the position to document him, that he welcomed me in, that the Lakers gave me that opportunity. I mean, there's a lot, there was a tremendous amount of gratitude and I was also very, uh, I felt like it was a job well done. Quite honestly, I felt like, I had taken that time, that block of time, and um, I had accomplished something, you know, not something tangible like our book, which is wonderful and so happy that we did it. And we hadn't done the book yet when he retired. But, you know, just that I had was able to be with him and and document that period of time, you know, that to me is a moment. What what was he like off the court, even with you, with your personal relationship with him? What what what, what kind of qualities do, do people maybe not know about Kobe Bryant as as the individual, not just a basketball player? Well, it was amazing to me, honestly, how he could turn it off. Um, that he could be the Mamba and you know this ruthless assassin on the court, take no prisoners, and 
you know, literally at the threshold of the locker room when he is leaving the locker room and his girls are running to his arms, he's done being the Mamba. That's it. I'm done. You know, I'm daddy now and let's go. And he's done. He's not doing any more interviews. He's very polite. He, and he is walking out of the arena with Vanessa and the girls and he's daddy. You know, that doesn't mean he doesn't go home and watch film and, and rehab injuries and do all that stuff because, you know, we're all kind of workaholics when it comes to our craft. But but it just blew me away. I mean, his like he talked about so many times that if he missed the last second shot and they lost the game, literally in like the blink of an eye, he would forget about it. And it would be like, okay, that happened. What did I learn from that? What did I do wrong? What could, what could I do better next time? And lo and behold, next time when that next time came up, most of the time he would hit that last second shot. <laughs> so I, I learned a lot from that about turning it around, letting go, um, you know, not taking it home with you. Um, you know, and of course he did and we all do, but there's a level of that and there's a level of when you can, you know, release yourself of, of everything and just be daddy and be the husband and just live life. And uh, I took a lot from that from him. So, you know, later in his career, of course, when he started having kids and he saw that there was, there was a wider birth, a wider kind of element to life than just what's on the court. And uh, that was fascinating to me. Andy, I can honestly talk to you for like three hours, but I can't. I can't <laughs> obviously keep you keep it, keep you that long. This is this is so like fascinating <laughs> and, and hearing your perspective on this. But uh, I'm gonna Thanks. I want to wrap up with this and um, looking at your life, like 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 you mentioned, you know, just a kid growing up in in Brooklyn, coming up, um, you know, moving over to LA. You, you traveled with the Dream Team, Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant. You mentioned all you know all of these things. When you look at your own life, and and you know, you could take a second to answer it, um, and you encapsulate everything and kind of where you're at right now. Um, what do you look back and, and, and feel the most grateful for? <laughs> well, I, it's funny you say that because, uh, we talked about it earlier. What I'm most grateful for is that my dad gave me that camera at 14 years old. Yeah. And, uh, I wish, I wish he was around right now. Honestly, I lost my dad in 2004, but, um, but you know, I wish he was around to see what, what became of this kid that he gave a camera to and, and spent literally all night in the dark room. And I like had a camera attached to me 24 seven, you know, um, when I was in high school. Uh, so that's what I'm most grateful for both my parents, my mom too, you know, she's very supportive of me. And, um, I have to be, that's the ultimate, uh, gratitude and my family too. My wife has been amazing. My kids have put up with their dad being gone, you know, weeks at a time coming home, you know, basically dropping laundry off and then going and doing games at home for four or five nights in a row. I mean, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice in, in our business um, because we live by a schedule, we live by a calendar, quite frankly. Gary Beatty talked about that on my podcast, and he's very, very, very true about that, that, you know, our, our life is really centered around the dates on the calendar where the team plays and where they're going to play. Um, and the other thing I'm grateful for is that I realized, uh, you know, about maybe five, six years ago that there was more to do. I mean, it would be great to kind of go out in the sunset, you know, have a 40 plus year career as a photographer and retire. But that's not my style. I realized that there was something to do about giving back, 
especially to legends, to to former athletes who maybe have fallen on hard times who need some help with the spotlight coming back and, and being able to be marketable again. And to bring my experience to another another level, to another platform. And that's why I created Legends of Sport with some partners. Um, and we now, you know, have a podcast that's been out there for three years. I've done over 80 podcasts and we just... Uh, we just signed a co-production and, and um, distribution partnership with the LA Times, so we're now on their platform and and uh, you know kind of driven by their engine, which is wonderful. And so that's you know that's super gratifying. You know I have to find enough enough hours in the day uh, <laughs> once I get back to doing what I do on the court, but but that's fun and I, I look forward to that and it, it keeps my juices flowing. I know I said that was the last question, but like I mentioned, I can talk to you for like four hours. I just feel like I'm learning <laughs> learning so much right now. Uh, one more question for you, just for any aspiring uh, photographers. Um, what, what word of advice would you give to, to somebody who's young and, and how to become the best at what they do? Well, um, I would really say that you have to find where your passion is in photography. Um, you know, shoot everything and anything and maybe a light bulb will go off. You know, if you you know, love shooting animals, then maybe that's your calling. Maybe uh, landscapes, maybe it's news, maybe it's sports, maybe it's fashion, whatever it could be. Um, so I would gravitate towards that passion and that area. And then I would study everything that you could possibly get your hands on to about that particular part of the craft. And, you know, that's another pillar of the Mamba mentality, which is curiosity. You know, Kobe was always curious about everything having to do with his craft, with my craft, with your craft, anybody. He he just wanted to know what made people tick, but especially about his own craft. You know, and that is very evident in our book that he talks about, you know, how he studied everything. So you really have to get your hands on that. And, and part B to that is you have to connect yourself with people who can help you you know, who you can learn from. And that could be going to a school uh, or connecting with a photographer who does what you eventually want to do in your career and uh, never stop asking questions and never stop asking for help. Because what's, what's the worst thing that can happen is somebody's going to just say no. <laughs> I mean, you don't know they're going to say no until you ask. So just keep knocking on doors. Um, be relentless in your pursuit of what you want to do. Um, don't get discouraged. And when you do get discouraged, realize that it's part of the process. So that's, that's really my advice. And, and the, really the last part of that advice is if you want to be a photographer, then you got to be shooting all the time. Okay. You can't like just say, Oh, next weekend, I'm going to go shoot, you know, whatever. No, you got to be shooting all the time and you got to be learning from it. And you have to be showing it to people like me who can give you advice or to other people who you respect and learn, learn, learn. That's really what it's about. Well, Andy, like I said, I, I, I want to keep you keep you on here, but uh, maybe we can get a cup of coffee sometime so I can pick your brain on my, no, on my own. Since we're, uh, since we're both in L.A., you know, once this yeah. COVID business is over, that'd be great. Yeah, we're about we're only about 10 minutes apart. But I, I really appreciate you hopping hopping on and doing this. This was uh, fascinating. And, and I thank you again for, for hopping on the podcast with me. Well, thanks so much and uh, be well, stay safe to everybody out there. And, uh, you know, so great to have NBA basketball back. I know we're all jazzed up about that. So let's enjoy it. And uh, I'm not going to even say keep our fingers crossed. I'm not keeping my fingers crossed because I, I believe that everything is going to go really well down there in Orlando. 
So uh, look for me in the bubble. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to it. And, uh, and, and enjoy your time over there in Orlando. Don't try and go too crazy while, while, while oh, you're no. uh, quarantined and, and sitting there in your own little world there. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Thanks so much. All right, that's Andy Bernstein. He is a Hall of Fame uh, photographer. You've, you've seen his work. You might maybe not even recognize it. You've seen his work uh, everywhere on, on online and the digital world. He works for the NBA, Lakers, Clippers. Uh, so many done so many things. A Legend of Sport podcast. You can check him out. Uh, he's, he's partnered up with the LA Times, as, as as he mentioned. You can you can check all that there as well. Uh, that does it for this episode. Listen, no disrespect to Brian Windhorst, Ramona Shelburne, uh, Devonte Kaycock, all these cool people I've had on on with me. This is hands down my favorite podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast network, the Silver Screen and Roll Podcast Network. Uh, we're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, you name it, we, we are there. And of course. Check out silverscreenandroll.com for all your Lakers needs. I'll talk to you all next week. All right, Andy, thank you very much for doing that. That was 